Welcome back my friend, it is ADHD Powerful Possibilities, I'm ADHD Coach Catherine and this month we are going to be looking at emotions and ADHD. Throughout this month we are going to dig deep into emotional dysregulation and we're going to make sure that you really understand it and that you have an insight into what's happening and why and the tools that you can use to change your relationship with your emotions forever. That's right. I am going to spend the next five episodes talking about emotions, ADHD, emotional dysregulation, what it means, how it happens, what you can do about it, and more importantly, how you can understand the impact it has on things like your focus, your organisation, your energy. It can lead you to isolate yourself. Other people might not understand what's happening and maybe not invite you to things. It can lead you to self-sabotage and hold back from pursuing your dreams because the emotional fallout feels so uncontrollable and overwhelming. But I passionately believe that self-education is key to understanding our own ADHD, our neurology, our emotions. Whatever impact emotional dysregulation is having on you right now, I believe that it can be improved. And I believe that you are the person who can do that. I had no idea when I was growing up that the intense emotions that I felt and sometimes felt like they actually kept me captive and overwhelmed were an aspect of ADHD. We're going to start today by just exploring what an emotion is, why it's different for people with ADHD, and a couple of the really popular models of how we understand emotional dysregulation and just have a chat about are they useful for you? Do you need to accept them? And we will end again, as always, with a practical thing that you can take away today for when you are feeling emotionally dysregulated. Let's begin by understanding what emotional dysregulation is, particularly when it comes to people with ADHD. The things you might notice are very sudden mood changes. And I was talking to somebody yesterday and they mentioned the the joy, the euphoria that we sometimes experience with ADHD. And I recognised immediately the power of that positive feeling that we get when everything is lined up, we're doing something that we love, we're doing it really well, we get this burst of joy and euphoria and that is a really intense ADHD emotion. At the same time that can very quickly turn into intense sadness because of everything that's happening in the world, something that may be happening in your personal life. So these very quick mood changes are an element of emotional dysregulation. It's possibly one of the reasons many people initially have a diagnosis of another mood disorder before recognising that actually this rapid change is part of ADHD and the emotional dysregulation. So the first thing is your moods change intensely and rapidly. You may also find that when you have become dysregulated, very upset, very angry, really unhappy, it's harder to come back to a place of regulation, which I guess most people would call calming down, but in fact is all about being in the appropriate emotional state for your circumstances. If something bad happens, it's appropriate to be upset. If as an adult, it's having an impact on your work. If you are somebody who regularly has to take time off, who regularly cannot complete work, who is having trouble managing your reaction and response to things in the workplace. All of these things are signposts of emotional dysregulation. I want to say I'm not a 
counsellor, a therapist or a psychologist. If you have any of these uh, experiences, you do need to have them assessed because the last thing you want to do is ignore something that could be treated like a mood disorder, like depression or anxiety. So don't ignore these experiences, but try to put them in the context of your longer term life. Have you always been somebody who has this emotional response or is this a new thing? And this can be very difficult if you're a woman going through a menstrual cycle. If you are entering perimenopause and menopause, your emotions are more likely to change. Is it something to do with a larger hormonal change in your stage of life? Although it's not part of the diagnosis of ADHD, it is really important that it's taken into account. It's really a core element of the experience of ADHD in everyday life. And most people, when you talk to them, say, my biggest problem is procrastination. When you dig underneath the surface, the procrastination is caused by the emotion that they're avoiding. And so procrastination is a temporary mood fix. Coming back to emotional dysregulation. Let's look at your brain. I do love the connections between the emotions we feel and what's happening in the brain. And I think when you know more about it, you'll love it too. I've talked before about your prefrontal cortex and the impact of that on your executive functions. Things like planning, prioritising, organising, time management. All the things that we struggle with ADHD are largely connected to your prefrontal cortex. And that is in the frontal lobe of your brain. So think of the prefrontal cortex in the frontal lobe as the dashboard inside your car. It might be that our dashboard in ADHD is a bit too sensitive. So you might need to wiggle the wipers on the windscreen in a certain way to get them to come on. You may need to be very careful when you're pressing the aircon button because it's going to come out like a hurricane. So your dashboard in ADHD your prefrontal cortex, the frontal lobe, is just a little bit more unpredictable, a little bit more sensitive to the input and how you drive the car. And if you've ever had a new phone or a new computer and you're trying to get used to the new buttons, you might find you're hitting them too hard, too soft, or it's opening things at random. It's exactly the same with your prefrontal cortex and the frontal lobe in ADHD. We just need to manage things a little bit differently. The next part of your brain you need to think about with emotional dysregulation is the limbic system. Now, this is a huge oversimplification, but it's near the centre of your brain and this is where emotions are processed. And again, it's a bit more sensitive with ADHD. It can also make it harder for us to calm down. Finally, we've got to think about your neurotransmitters, the chemical messengers that carry signals from one part of your brain to the other and have particular jobs. And of course, we think of dopamine with ADHD, but also norepinephrine. Now, dopamine and norepinephrine work in partnership. They react to the anticipation of reward, the feeling of pleasure, the excitement. But we know that the number of transmitters and the way they react to dopamine is different with ADHD. So instead of your brain being able to very easily balance itself out so you're motivated and you can take action, you're excited and then you can calm down. With ADHD that balance is less predictable. That's one of the reasons why many of us take medication and many of us respond to it, but not everyone. And each of these parts of the brain is exactly the same in all humans, but with ADHD we know that the frontal lobe functions differently. 
there can be less activity in the frontal lobe and the structure can be different. There can be weaker connections between different parts of your brain. And this physical difference in the structure of your brain changes your response to emotions. For all the recent discussions about chicken nuggets and metabolism and things like that, your brain is functionally, structurally different because your genes are different. There are some people who experience ADHD-like symptoms because of lead poisoning or other problems, but the majority of people with ADHD are genetically different and their structure and function of their brain is different. Let's accept you have a different brain, that it works in a slightly different way, and now let's look at what an emotion is and what's happening inside your brain while you experience that emotion. So each emotion is a response to a trigger. This could be something that's external, like a conversation, or it could be internal, a memory or a sensation, a pain that you have. It can be a thought. An external or internal event is the trigger. And that information is sent to the brain, to the thalamus. Your thalamus is like a relay station. It's the guy in the telegram office tapping out the signal and it sends the message to your amygdala. So the sensory information comes through the thalamus and heads over to the amygdala. And the problem here is that your amygdala response is quick, super quick. And an emotion doesn't pass through your cortex where Mr. Logic sits and says, is this a proportionate response? Is this a logical thought? It goes straight from the thalamus to the amygdala where you have an emotion really quickly. But the amygdala isn't going to question whether this is true or not. It's only interested in, is this a threat or is it safe? It's going to keep you safe no matter what. So if your amygdala senses a threat or a significant emotional event, it triggers your fight or flight or freeze. And that is where we quite often experience the dysregulation. Once it's gone through the amygdala, the information is passed to your cortex. Now the cortex takes its time and looks at the context, looks at your past history, at your experience, and then it makes an assessment about what the appropriate response would be. And that's when your neurotransmitters are released. So dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine. For example, serotonin is associated with stabilisation and these modulate or shape our emotional response. The emotional reaction, the emotional response shaped by these neurotransmitters leads to a physiological change, a physical change in your body which creates a feedback loop. And you might start to experience an increase in cortisol. So your heart rate goes up, you start to sweat and your body thinks, whoa, I'm experiencing a high heart rate, I'm sweating, something scary must be happening. So then the amygdala perks its ears up again and says, something scary is happening. And you can see how this loop of emotion begins from a thought, a conversation, a memory, and it very quickly becomes a reality as far as your brain is concerned. At this point, your prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus should be able to assess the situation and establish whether you need to maintain this level of response, whether this emotion is appropriate, 
or whether things can return to a stable base. And that's one of the things that we do as parents when we're physically soothing, consoling, offering safety to a child. We're acting as the external hippocampus, the external prefrontal cortex for this person who's not quite able to settle their own brain down again. And in emotional dysregulation, there are several points where this process can be interrupted. Very early on, you might find that your amygdala reacts too quickly or too strongly. And there's some evidence that this happens more in people with ADHD. This happens because of how our brains are built. It could be that our brains have this rapid amygdala response because of our experience as people with ADHD and we're conditioned by our circumstances to respond more quickly. But this is how we are built. That leads to an overreaction. I know that I'm a person who jumps and reacts really quickly to noises and things way out of line with anybody else around me. Now that you have an idea of what's actually happening in your brain and throughout the rest of your body when you experience an emotion and you understand why your brain responds to that in a way that could be seen as dysregulated, let's think about how psychologists have explained this. And the two people I want to look at today are Dr. Russell Barclay and Dr. William Dodson. And these are two of the most influential writers, educators, clinicians in ADHD medicine at the moment. Today, we'll look at Dr. Russell Barclay's model of DESR, Deficient Emotional Self-Regulation, and Dr. William Dodson's RSD, Rejection Sensitive Dysphoria. These are important topics and some people won't even have a conversation about RSD because they feel that if you question how it's been explained, it is an invalidation of their experience and it's a questioning of the reality of their emotional life and the impact it's had on them. I want to make it very clear that is not what I'm doing today. So let's look at these two models and understand what they are, what their strengths are, and if there are any areas where we might question their usefulness or what the implications are for your everyday life. Let's begin with DESR because it's the one fewer people have heard about. Deficient emotional self-regulation proposed by Dr. Russell Barclay, who everyone has seen in clips on the internet talking about how bad ADHD can be, is deficient emotional self-regulation. So emotional dysregulation fits really well with this. And it is very much a part of the understanding that our executive functions is less efficient in an ADHD brain because of the structural neurotransmitter differences that we've talked about before. And it's very much connected to our impulsivity, our inability to put the brakes on in time. It means that we might have a harder time self-soothing and find it more difficult to focus our attention back. I don't think there's anything controversial in any of that. And it's not suggesting that our emotions are exceedingly negative or exceedingly out of control, just that our ability to point the torch of our emotional focus in the direction we want isn't quite what we would like at our age and stage of development. And Dr. Barclay's model is widely supported by research 
and I'll include articles that you can go and read in the show notes as always. It puts it very much in the context of wider executive function problems like prioritisation, impulsivity, time management, organisation. So it's definitely within the same context of an executive function model of ADHD. It also lines up with the observed neurological differences in our frontal lobes and in the limbic system. So there is good objective evidence, both in terms of studies, journal articles, also in the physical evidence. And thank goodness for fMRIs, which allow us to observe how our brains are working in different areas. And so you would think that DESR is the one that most people would understand, recognise and identify with, because it's not incredibly negative. It allows us to have those highs and lows. It fits with the executive dysfunction. But instead, the one that everybody talks about on social media is RSD, rejection sensitive dysphoria. So what's that about and where did that come from? RSD, rejection sensitive dysphoria, was kind of first given that name by Dr. William Dodson. And his take on it is that this is an exaggerated response that should respond to medication. He proposed this idea and the general public with ADHD here and thought, wow, somebody understands. Somebody understands just how painful I find rejection, how sensitive I feel to the responses of other people. And the difficulty is that this is all very subjective and anecdotal. I think there's a lot more material being produced now. People are paying attention to this aspect of our emotions. And of course, when you pay attention to something, thank goodness people take it seriously, but you also get more funding and money for research. So from a clinical, scientific point of view, it's definitely seen as something that is symptom or a subset of experiences of emotional dysregulation or deficient emotional self-regulation, rather than being something out there on its own. And so far, and I would love to be proven wrong, or if somebody knows an article that you can send to me, at the moment I haven't found a unique pathway in the brain that is triggered or is has a response elicited that could be identified clearly as RSD in the ADHD brain. I may be wrong because there's fantastic research being done all the time. And I have to be honest, the problem that I have with RSD is that it pathologizes the intensity of ADHD emotions. And we already have enough of that happening with our executive functions. And the difference between a mood disorder and a pathologized ADHD mood is that a mood disorder generally lasts and is consistent. If you're depressed, the doctor will ask you if you've been experiencing it for two weeks or more. With ADHD emotional regulation and dysregulation, these mood changes are much quicker than you would find in something like bipolar, much more up and down varied than you would find in something like anxiety or clinical depression. So RSD feels a little bit like saying you experience this but it's it's a pathology, it's wrong, rather than this is an element of your whole brain difference. What we often see in ADHD is our highs are high and our lows are lower. Uh, David Gaywork and Barbara Luther from ARCA paper in response to understanding RSD when it first was presented and they felt the same, that 
an ADHD person's moods are always triggered by an event, a person, a comment, an interaction, either with our thoughts or with the outside world, rather than the kind of dysthemia that people have, this overall low mood. But when you label something as dysphoria and pathologize it, it gets stuck. It becomes something we recognize and identify. Barbara, who was my teacher, always said, bad is stickier than good. Guess what? If you label your emotional response to something as a rejection sensitivity dysphoria, it becomes something that you can hang on to and stick with. And yes, it is painful. It's exquisitely painful. And I would never diminish anybody's experience of this. But I would question its usefulness for most people. And in a few episodes, I'm going to share a concept that I think gives you a different perspective and allows you to embrace that sensitivity but in a more possible more possible way in a way that allows you to understand it in a useful context let's just finish our look at desr and rsd by thinking are they useful ideas for us in our everyday life and what are the implications with desr we're going to expect a broader range of emotional reactivity you're going to experience heightened emotional reactions and responses and we also know that your impulse control is going to be affected because when you're busy dealing with an emotion, your ability to control your impulses is also going to be impacted. So it could have an impact on your daily life, but this is a broader range of emotions rather than an incorrect way to feel things. It's just the volume's turned up to 11. If you're of a certain age, you'll understand. And of course, this could affect things like your relationships, but there are ways that you can improve that through communication, fostering empathy and compassion between partners, between family members. But this emotional turbulence will require some effort if you want to manage impact on your daily life. It's not going to just go away without you making any effort. What is the impact and the implication of rejection sensitivity dysphoria? On the one hand, it's really fantastic for self-awareness. It allows people to feel seen, to understand their own reactions and their own sensitivity. It can also have an impact on personal relationships and I think it's really important that anyone who is in a relationship or in a family, uh, in a class of friendship with someone with ADHD is aware that we are acutely aware and sensitive to what other people are thinking and what they're saying and how they're saying it and there is this awareness that can be really powerful. At the same time it can also be wrong. The thing is that there are things you can do if you are very sensitive and you can learn things like mindfulness and stress relief and there are CBT techniques that are very helpful. Overall, both of these, I think, can work very nicely together as long as we keep in mind that the ADHD experience is one of maximising and we maximise our emotions in the same way as we maximize our attention. When we are interested, we hyper-focus and we can disappear for hours, days into something that we're passionately interested about. But that interest is also an emotion and it's a positive one when it's in the right direction. So think of RSD as being under the umbrella of this emotional self-regulation that Dr. Barclay talks about. But be aware that at no point should uh, label disempower you. And in a couple of episodes, I'm going to introduce the concept, which is emotional acuity resonance. 
ear. And it's about taking that emotional awareness, that sensitivity, that fantastic responsiveness that you have and using it as a positive strength that you can lean into when you really understand it. But for now, we're going to look at simple things that are going to affect your emotional self-regulation and move on from these clinical models into things that affect your emotional self-regulation on a day-to-day basis and then briefly what you can do with them. Let's look at three things that everybody with ADHD will experience and that can disrupt your emotional regulation. The first is a lack of sleep. If you are experiencing problems sleeping, that is going to affect your emotional regulation because your whole brain responds to that lack of rest. It's been shown to affect things like how we eat and how we behave during the day, but in ADHD, this effect is magnified. If you are a person who's in a stressful environment, you're going to have more cortisol already. And then if you add in the ADHD overreaction of the amygdala, you can see why you get this really exaggerated response. And something that some people ignore but is an important part of living with ADHD is an overstimulation, a sensory overload. If your senses are being overwhelmed, if it's too loud, too noisy, too smelly, too bright, too fast, all of these things, your brain's already processing all of that information and trying to make sense of that. We're perhaps less good at filtering it out. And this can also lead us to quicker and more intense emotional responses. So when somebody taps your arm or interrupts you, you're more likely to explode. Now, one thing I'm going to look at in an episode in a couple of weeks is the impact of myths around ADHD and how that affects our emotions. But one that I want to address right now is that this is somehow a lack of willpower and you're just being too sensitive. If it was only that simple, nobody who experiences emotional dysregulation would continue to do so if it was simply a matter of choice. There are things that we can do and there are steps that we can take to support ourselves and look after ourselves, but it's not something that you have chosen to experience because it's generally unpleasant and every single human being on the planet wants to avoid unpleasant experiences. While we're going to look at long-term strategies in future episodes, I want to give you a couple of things that you can do when you are starting to recognise that you are experiencing emotional dysregulation. These are not miracle cures. You're still going to experience the emotion, but if you practice them enough, they will start to allow you to regain that balance and that control more quickly. A lot of people talk about mindfulness for ADHD. I personally love ADHD mindfulness, but there are important caveats that I want to pop into this episode. There are some people for whom it is not suitable. If you have PTSD, if you are managing trauma and are not in a great place, traditional mindfulness can be harmful. When we begin to focus inward, we can become overstimulated. We can spiral into rumination. We can experience intense low moods. And if we're being mindful of our thoughts, then if you have distressing negative thoughts, that's not helpful. And of course, we have the difficulty with focusing. Expecting people with ADHD to be able to focus for 35-40 minutes for traditional mindfulness practice is hopeful. 
let's say it's hopeful, if not unrealistic. So what can you do instead? And these are things that you can do when you feel emotionally dysregulated. Think about a mindful moment. Think about being fully present in your body in the present moment. So being very conscious of how your feet are touching the floor, the weight of your body as it passes through your legs. Uh, hold on to something uh, in front of you or beside you and feel where your fingertips make contact with it. Come into the present moment rather than allowing your mind to spiral off into negative memories and simply breathe and focus on filling up your stomach as you breathe in slowly. But don't try to do it for more than one or two breaths. We're just asking your brain to come back to right here and to focus on the breath and the contact of your skin on the surface, the weight of your feet on the floor. You might find that something like a walking meditation, a walking mindfulness practice is something you can use every day. If you're starting to feel emotionally dysregulated at work, can you take a break, go for a walk around the block and again, be very conscious of how your feet feel as they touch the ground, how your body experiences the swinging of your arms. Think about your breath coming in and filling up your lungs as you go around. And we're distracting your body and asking it just to attend to the experience of the world right now, rather than the exaggerated, overwhelming inner world where these emotions are in charge. And of course, there's the old 5-4-3-2-1 technique, which is something children can learn. You look for five things that you can see, four things that you can touch, three that you can hear, two you can smell, and one you can taste. This helps you to come back into the moment again without deep introspection, deep inner thinking. If it's overwhelming and you're experiencing a sensory overload, focus on one external object and simply breathe while you look at that one external object. It could be a tree, it could be a chair, it doesn't matter. Ideally, it's something natural, something that we know provokes a calm response, like nature, flowing water. These are all perfect. If you can't do that, pick one thing and only focus on that just for a few breaths until you feel yourself coming back together. If you do have PTSD, if you're experiencing trauma or burnout, get professional advice as quickly as possible. Not from me. I don't coach on those things. It's with my remit. But there are people who are qualified. And more generally, we're likely to experience emotional dysregulation when we feel that things are out of control. And one of the simple ways to do that is to have a kind of structure or routine in your life. And I know some people say, I hate routine. I can't stick to a routine. That's maybe because it's not the right routine for you. A routine has to be flexible. It has to be adaptable and changeable. Because when we try to do exactly the same thing every day, very soon we're going to get bored and then we'll drop the whole thing. So instead of doing that, think about how loose can you make the structure? Is it simply getting up at the same time every day? Is it simply having the first half hour of your day without your phone and reading something interesting that you enjoy? It doesn't have to be a self-help book. There's so many of those. What do you enjoy reading? Spend half an hour doing that instead of looking at your phone. But it doesn't need to be complicated. And simply making that your structure it gives you a routine that is not confining and it's that 
feeling of being confined that I think we rebel against. And of course, that feeling of confinement provokes an emotion because we feel trapped. So we look for freedom. So your emotional reaction starts up all over again. But that's why when you're thinking about a routine, how loose and free can you make it be very gentle, very light. There is good, solid research that shows routines and structure help ADHD brains because we have less weight of executive functioning to do every day. And we're going to go into great depth on that in a couple of episodes. Think about Dr. Kathleen Nadeau's M-E-N-D-S-S. Those are her ingredients for a great healthy routine that people with ADHD need. And it's mindfulness, exercise, nature, good diet, social interaction and sleep. And if you can get those into your daily life in any shape or form that works for you, you're going to feel that you have a routine which is unique to you, but it's going to meet those essential needs to keep your ADHD brain healthy and functioning. And to allow you to do that, I've created a Notion template and a Google Doc, which you can download and which are going to allow you to become aware of your emotions, how your routine is affecting them. There's a waiting list page for it just now. Wherever you look, I'm going to have a link for you to join the waitlist if you want access to that Notion tracker in the Google Doc. The early simple version is going to be free. I'm working on a really lovely one which will show you very clearly how all of this comes together and how to maximise the good stuff about ADHD without being overwhelmed by the challenges, the emotional dysregulation. So if you want to join the waiting list for that, check my links. It will be wherever you see my name and uh, you'll be first on the list to get access to that when it comes out. And the next episode, we are going to be looking at ADHD and stress. And I think this is a really important one because, as I said before, when your stress levels are high, your cortisol level is high, apart from the physical health problems that you have, it can create real mental stress and strain if you have ADHD. So come back next week to learn more about ADHD and stress, what it looks like, how to manage it, and get on the waiting list for the Notion and Google documents that will allow you to see the proof that this is happening to you and learn how to manage it better. I would love to hear from you if you've experienced emotional dysregulation, what it's meant for you, the impact has been for you. Um, if you're in the very loose and not remotely official team bulb, use that hashtag and I will keep an eye out for you and we'll look at how emotional dysregulation and stress and ADHD act together and over the next few weeks we're going to transform how you understand this and how you respond to it and how you can manage it going forward. So thank you again for joining me today on ADHD Powerful Possibilities. Do share this if it's been valuable for you and come back next Wednesday for your next episode.